Hello, welcome to the IDEAS podcast. Inclusive, digital, educational, anti-discriminatory alternatives. You're listening to module three, Women's Minorities and Their Rights, Migrant, Roma, and Homeless Women in the Czech Society. Episode three, Homeless Women in Czech Society. difficult is it to have an experience of a homeless woman? We know that homeless people are often exposed to denigration in our societies, their situation and experience overlooked. They are being blamed for their situation and generally devalued. Living in the streets brings many challenges, very often also violence, both from individuals and sometimes even police. How is it then, when we add to the equation being a woman. Are patterns and trajectories of male and female homelessness different? And if yes, how? What are the biggest challenges for living homeless as a woman? Where do they find their strength? Who helps them? And is there any solidarity among homeless women? What does the digital age bring to homeless women? Allow me to welcome Miss Lucie Witkova, a community activist and an organizer in the Czech NGO Homelike, working with and for women with experience of being homeless. Lucia was homeless, her children were placed in foster care, and she had health problems, but she managed to educate herself, to become a field social worker, a peer coordinator, and a lecturer. Today, we're talking with her about her life trajectory, engagements, and perceptions of Czech society, Czech social benefit system, and the homeless community. How does she manage to overcome the obstacles of prejudices and become a part of a thriving community center member? Our guest today, Ms. Lucie Witkova. Thank you, Lucie, for finding time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Tell us something about your background. I'm Lucie Witkova. I'm 38 and I have two children. Before I lost my home, I lived and worked just like any other regular person. Then I fell ill, which meant losing a job and financial means and finally housing. My family played a role in all this, but that's a bit more complicated story. Before my illness, I used to work in a kindergarten as a nurse for five years. When I fell ill, initially, no one knew what was the reason because it started like an ordinary flu. How old were you then? I was 24. Did you already have children? I did. I started early. So nobody knew what it was. It looked initially like a common flu, but when it didn't stop, various examinations began. I was losing weight and constantly felt ill. I dropped from 90 to 62 kilos and I felt really weak. My mother refused to help me with my children, so I had to manage everything on my own. Finally, the emergency car took me to the hospital. At the hospital, they told me I came not at the last moment, but the last second that I was very close to that. Then I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and total sepsis of organism. I stayed at the hospital for nine months, four of which I was in intensive care and drips. So they had to take someone else instead of me at work. Apologies for asking. 
but could you rely on the father of your children for support? No, because he had a car accident and died when I was in the fifth month of pregnancy. Imagine I was left completely alone to deal with the situation. I come from a very dysfunctional family. You had no one to support you? Perhaps if my mom hadn't had the partner she had at the time, maybe, but just maybe, I could have had some kind of support from her. But he was very much against her helping me. During the time I spent at the hospital, the problems with housing began. Because my mom had some financial problems and decided to sell the right to a municipal flat we lived in while I was at the hospital. Hence, I had nowhere to return after they released me from the hospital. Where were the kids? The kids were placed with a child help NGO. When I was at the hospital, the governmental body for social and legal protection of children got involved And because of my long-term illness and because my mom said they couldn't stay with her place, the child in the NGO. The problem was that my elder son was already too old to be in such a facility for children up to three years of age. And he was seven at the time. After some time, the decision was made to place the kids into temporary foster care. I gave my consent under one condition, not to separate my boys, which they respected. I see. So they released you from the hospital and you were able to live independently. Well, because I had no place to go, I temporarily stayed with my aunt and tried to solve the housing problem. But after three months, I was admitted to the hospital again. I needed more surgeries and had to stay at the hospital again for six months. During my time at the hospital, I was looking to rent a place and after release, I found a place to stay, which I paid from social benefits and disability pension. It was clear I could never work again as a nurse. But the problem was I had no other skills. All my life, I wanted to be a nurse. Okay, so you rented a place and took your kids back. No, I couldn't get my children back because the court order was that the kids could come back to me only if my health condition was stable and the reason why kids were removed wouldn't repeat. In addition to get my kids back, I had to prove my financial stability. I had none of this, so the court decided I wasn't able to take care of my kids. What did you think about the court's decision at the time? For a very long time, I considered the fact that I had to give them away in the first place as my personal failure. I thought that as a mother, I wasn't able to take care of them. In hindsight, I see it as the best decision I could make given the circumstances. My children would have only suffered with me. I could barely care for myself. So, how did it end with the kids? The children are permanently in foster care. I see them regularly. They take me as their mom. We talk, we visit each other. My older son is a student now, and he is an adult and can decide for himself. How do children perceive the whole situation now that you're older? They are in a great foster family. I used to keep a diary where I described how I felt, what I was doing. That helped a lot. And of course, the kids have been and still are in the care of psychologists because I'm still sick and their biggest fear is that I'll die. They are constantly under therapy because of that. It was truly difficult at the beginning with the foster family too. 
for a very long time. They thought I wasn't at the hospital and I was lying about being at the hospital for such long periods of time. So they required proof or where I was and what was happening with me. In the end, we solved this problem in such a way that I regularly sent them my medical reports. That helped a lot and improved our relationship. What was the worst moment related to housing? Insecurity? The realization you have no place to go? No. The worst was that I was paying rent from benefits and I wasn't getting them regularly. That's why I got an eviction notice and I had to move to a homeless shelter. But unfortunately, there was two-day gap between the rented flat and the homeless shelter. Those days and one night, I spent in the streets. I rode the tram back and forth as I was afraid to sleep in the streets. It's difficult to be a woman in the streets. And in addition, I felt such shame so I didn't turn to any people I knew. I said to myself, I live with this for a day or two. But it was very painful psychologically. I kept repeating to myself, this is how I ended up. This is what it looks like when someone is homeless. That was the worst. Together with the loss of support, when you have to think, where can I use toilets? Where can I wash? Where can I get water? And other such ordinary stuff that we don't even notice when we have a home. In addition, you are dragging a heavy suitcase because everything of your property that's left is in it. That's terrible. But then you moved to the shelter. Yes. There you have your basic needs met. You are where it's warm. You can lie down, have some rest, wash. You don't feel well, but you have basic stuff. Until they organize your benefits, you get some food to cook. If you need clothes, you get it. Also basic hygienic products. But most importantly, there were people who truly understood the homeless situation. They organized my benefits. The social workers were helpful. They also helped with looking for housing. Call me naive, but I thought that's why we had the social protection system, so nobody has to experience what you experienced. The services should have reacted already while you had been at the hospital. Ideally, yes. But that's not how it works in reality. Is it correct to say that you received the biggest help? Yes, from the shelter. Who runs the shelter? The shelter is run by NGO Hope. Yes, on their website, they declare their mission is to put gospel into practice. They are all about social work for all kinds of vulnerable people. I had a difficult beginning. I was in the shelter for two weeks and then I had a nervous breakdown. That's why I moved to psychiatric clinic where I spent relatively long time because I had to start solving the issues related to my family and other psychological problems. From the clinic, I went back to the shelter. Upon return, I started working with the head of the center on finding employment and with finding a direction in my life. When I was at the clinic, they suggested I would make a good peer. Just to clarify, a peer is a person who had some difficult experiences and is trained to share and help other people with similar difficulties. Exactly. So we discussed this on Friday and already on Monday I was enrolled in a course for peers. At home, like? No, that was at the Recovery Academy. I see. The Recovery Academy is a British organization with branches in different countries that offers courses for people in need. Yes, but I also received a suggestion for another course called the Street School that was at home, like. I completed both courses 
almost simultaneously. When the head of the shelter suggested the course, she also gave me the contact with another NGO called The Good Place, which provides employment for people with mental health issues who want to be peers. So I had an interview with them and after a while they accepted me. Okay, just to make it clear, you received the most significant help from NGOs and social system institutions. Yes, you could say that. There was no possibility of relying on family or relatives or perhaps friends. Family and relatives not at all. As for friends, I didn't want to burden friends with my problems and especially I didn't want to ask for money. The closest friends knew where I was and offered support in the sense that we could talk about my situation or if I needed to have a break from the shelter, I could meet them, etc. I couldn't expect them to take part in solving my housing situation. That's why the shelter was crucial because when I left it, I moved to so-called training housing, which was a flat that belonged to Hope and where I stayed for two years. From there, I moved to a commercial rental place because I already had a job. I see. So you started as a peer at the good place. Yes. The first year, I worked as a peer. The second, as a peer coordinator. I coordinated eight peers. From there, I went to Homelike, where I've been working for the last six months. What do you exactly do at Homelike? At the moment, I work as a field social worker in a team for homeless women housing. I'm also a part of a team that provides training in a trauma-sensitive approach. In addition, I work at the reception of the home-like community center. Sounds like a full-time job. Is that okay with you? It is, because if it's too much, I can always talk to management in home-like and take a break. They are flexible and understanding in that sense. What's a trauma-sensitive approach and who is it for? I train social workers and employees of the job offices because what happens very often is that while solving homelessness, women are being re-traumatized by the same people who should help them. For example, we provide in the center a possibility to take a shower, change clothes and use makeup. Women can dye hair, paint nails and so on. Then, when they go to job office, they are criticized for looking so tidy and made up. They are told you are not homeless if you can use makeup. I see it as discriminatory. Even we who have homes tend to come tidy to official meetings. It's absurd because when they come dirty, they are criticized. When they come clean, they are criticized. Women are then confused. They are already traumatized by being homeless and now they are re-traumatized when they are both dirty or neat. That's why many women ask us to accompany them to offices. Because if they are accompanied by a social worker or a field worker, they have a much better chance of being treated decently and managing to do what they came for. Could you tell us something about causes of homelessness from not only your personal but a more general experience related to your work? I would divide them into personal or human and systemic. The system fails in prevention. It deals with consequences, and usually when it's too late. It fails to intervene on time and provide help on time. Sometimes a woman has no strength left to solve her problems, or it becomes such a huge problem that its solving requires the participation of a huge number of people. The help comes 
but not right when it's needed. It comes with a delay. When it comes to a personal or human reasons, I would stress addiction, which is frequent, but not as frequent as generally taught. However, in most cases, the cause is dysfunctional family, no education, violence, or lack of upbringing. A lot of women had no one to give them an upbringing. Some haven't completed even their primary school education. A very frequent cause is violent relationships. Is there a specific gender dimension in homelessness? Are men and women homeless differently? Do you have an opinion on that? Well, first of all, there are fewer women than men who are homeless. But that's partially because female homelessness is still taboo. It's partially because women tend to feel shame for being homeless. Another difference is that women are in much bigger danger in the street. Men face fewer risks. A woman can be raped, attacked, harassed. She's more often exposed to robbery. Women are more often attacked by groups of men. Often, they remain in violent relationships to have some degree of protection. Even when her partner beats her, she feels safer than when she is on her own. Then we also talk less about female homelessness. Even when we look at community centers, there are just two centers for women only in Prague. What activities can women access in your community center? It is a daycare center where women can shower, lie down, sleep, get warm, make tea, eat hot meals, get clothes and groceries at regular intervals, and some hygienic needs such as toothpaste, etc. Then they can also use the services of a therapist and social workers. The community center is for women only? Yes, the one of two in Prague. All other community centers are for mixed clients. We have a rule that men should not even enter the street where the community center is situated. That's for the sake of women's safety. We have good feedback on these decisions because it used to happen that men waited outside the center for women to go out and women felt unsafe. Since I've been in the center, there was no violence, but sometimes they tried to get groceries. We explain we work with women only and for our own and our clients' safety, they should not hang around the center. How is the community center financed? We get groceries from food bags and from Tesco. For other activities, we have grants, for example, a grant from the Prague magistrate. But we constantly have to look for grants and resources. Today, at our staff meeting, our manager said there wouldn't be any EU grants available in the future. How's that possible? I don't really know. Maybe it's just there won't be any new EU grants for the community center. I don't know. We are also trying to reach out to private sources, to philanthropists, but we live in uncertainty. I would like to ask you how you see your future, the future of the community center and homeless women in general. My future? I'm not contemplating my future anymore. I take care of myself, of my health. I love my work. But if it doesn't work, I will accept it. Perhaps I have some prejudices about sick people, but I must say you look very healthy. If you didn't tell me you were ill, I would have never guessed. You also look younger than your age. Thank you. I think that's very much connected with the mental and psychological state of mind. I have to say that the therapy I received at the clinic helped a lot. I'm still going to therapy and I believe I will be going for the rest of my life also because it helps keep my health problems in check. Of course, 
the work I'm doing is not easy. It affects my mental state. But that's why mental hygiene is so important in my case. You know, when you twice end up almost dead, you realign your priorities. For me, it's crucial that I can, that I'm able to. I enjoy that I can, and that's maybe why I look better than my real condition. As for the center, I honestly hope we won't run out of funding because we represent a point of stability for homeless women. I think they'd be physically and mentally disadvantaged if we were stop providing services. They know we are there for them. They can rely on us and feel safe with us. At least for half a day, they don't have to deal with the problems they face on the streets, including menstruating as a homeless woman, which is often an impossible task. Of course. Do you perceive some kind of successful integration? Some women who managed as you did? In some cases, we see success, in others not. It depends a lot on the moment we are able to intervene and on their health situation. Some women ran out of strength completely. Many are diagnosed with various mental illnesses. But the fact that they keep coming back to us, that they are with us and not at some train station, that's already a success. I know that at home, like, you provide them with jobs as well. Yes, we have an initiative called Cooks Without Home. We also provide shelter and housing. For example, we placed women in humanitarian hotels during COVID. We participate in all their successes, and each woman whose situation improves is a victory for her and us. If I understood well, the system of social protection should, in your opinion, change to be more flexible and more preventive. More preventive, but mainly more rapid. Because for some women... Help arrives too late. The latest example, only in the previous couple of months have three women died on the street. From COVID? No, from the impact of living on the streets. They were a bit older, but not too old. My client who died was 52. Wow, that's like me. But she was also addicted. Is addiction to alcohol or drugs more frequent? It's much more alcohol. I told you, I did research on young homeless people in Prague. One of the differences was that younger homeless people were more often addicted to drugs, while the older ones were more often addicted to alcohol. I see. In general, if the system were quicker, our job would be easier. The social benefit system is good, but it needs to be faster. And as I said, if it were more preventive... We really fail in prevention. We deal with consequences. Would you like to add something? I'd like to add that it's great we started talking about female homelessness. And I'd like to see even more conversations. So homelessness ceased to be a taboo. We still have firmly entrenched in the society that it's the fault of homeless women that they are homeless. Indeed, in some cases... It's their fault, but in the vast majority of cases, it's not. And when they are blamed for their condition, we get traumatization of the victims. So the more we talk about it, the more solutions we'll find. Let me share my experience from the research I mentioned. I did interviews with experts, too. One of the experts was the director of an NGO which worked with the most vulnerable population, namely underage male prostitutes. 
I admired him for his work, but he almost threw me out of the interview when I protested that his view that it's easier for women to be homeless because they can always trade sex. Oh, no. But many men see women as those who are created to provide sex. Many of those men who abuse homeless women for sex used to say, I will help you, but, or you don't have money, doesn't matter. But the worst thing is that when it happens once, twice, three times, homeless women tend to accept it as a norm. They stop seeing it as abnormal. For me personally, that's what bothers me the most when they accept it as normal, even though there's nothing normal about it. Often, society fails to see how difficult it is for them being pregnant or menstruating on the street, constantly wondering, where can I access toilet? Where can I get tampons or pads? Where will I wash my clothes? For example, during COVID, all libraries were shut down and public toilets too. That created huge problems, really huge. Can I add something else, please? Oh, please go ahead. I also wanted to add that I go to primary schools to teach children about homelessness. I tell them my story. I am very grateful for this opportunity and I am glad that kids as young as 10 hear my story and learn about homelessness. The kids usually have a distorted image of homeless people and we often manage to change that image. We tell them our stories and let them ask questions. They also realize the kind of family support they have and which we didn't have. We managed to change their idea that a homeless person is a dirty hobo somewhere far from their world. I don't want to abuse your kindness, but I would like to invite you to speak to my students in the coming academic year. It is no abuse. I am happy to talk about my experience. That's my contribution to removing the taboo, the stigma from this subject. Because only by talking about it can people realize it can happen to anyone. I would never think I'd go through it. Sometimes it takes a minor problem and you hit bottom. Thank you, Lucie. This was a very inspiring conversation and I wish you the best of luck. You are welcome. It looked like everything was stacked against Lucie in her life. Serious illness, loss of the father of her children, loss of home, loss of job, and most importantly, loss of care for her children. It seemed that the situation was so grave that there was no solution. But with the help of non-governmental organizations and social benefit system and psychiatric health care, Lucia managed bit by bit to put her life back together and spread her knowledge and skills to help other homeless women. She became a peer for other homeless women. She became a trainer for trauma-sensitive approach in social work. She became a lecturer for young people who often knew nothing about homelessness. She managed to keep building her relationship with her children and accepted she couldn't care for them on her own. She told us how important it was to remove the taboo from female homelessness, how important it is to talk about how it happens and what should be done. Most importantly, she warned us it could happen to anyone. Her experience with the social system is that the system is comprehensive but sometimes desperately slow. That's why it's too late for some women to change their situation. The situation of women living in the streets, exposed to more dangers than men, having to menstruate or be pregnant in the street, facing rape, violence and robbery. As Lucia said, let's not accept this as something normal. Let's fight it together.